Our gracious God in heaven, glory be Your name. You are worthy of our worship and we have assembled to worship You today. We thank You for the Sabbath that You have given us. We thank You that it directs us to the complete and eternal rest that we have in Christ. We thank You that we can, Your people can gather together today to study Your Word and to worship You through it. And we ask now that as we continue our study of the ordinary means of grace and specifically the attributes of Scripture, that Your Holy Spirit would guide us and direct us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so up until this point, um, we have been looking at uh, Scripture, and last week I said that we were going to take a new uh, study within a study, uh, and that is and look at the attributes of Scripture. Uh, you may recall that I listed these out for us last week. Uh, the attributes of Scripture, at least as I'm teaching them, are the authority of Scripture, which we looked at last week, the clarity of Scripture that we'll look at this week, the necessity of Scripture that we'll look at, Lord willing, next week, and the sufficiency of Scripture that we will look at, Lord willing, the following week. So these are the, the attributes of Scripture that, uh, again, some of you who have studied this uh, before, the doctrine of Scripture, for example, you may have seen these in different uh, terms and different uh, labels, uh, as it were, uh, but these are the ones that I'm using uh, to teach through this. The Scripture is the same, uh, whether the name uh, is used differently or not. And uh, we looked last week at the topic of the authority of Scripture. And you may recall that we said that Scripture is God's Word. Scripture is God's Word, and I know for many of you, uh, you were like, well, I assumed that before I got here. Uh, but sometimes we need to be reminded, don't we, uh, that in fact it is God-breathed. This is the Word of God, and so uh, what we deduced from that is to disbelieve or disobey Scripture is to disbelieve and disobey God. That is a key connection that we believe as Reformed Protestants. That is distinctly different from what the world will acknowledge if they even acknowledge the Bible at all. In other words, some may say, oh, well, you believe that the Bible is the Word of God. Okay, I'll give that to you. But when you actually make them think through it, actually articulate, well, what does that mean? Well, that means to disbelieve and disobey God's Word means to disbelieve and disobey God. Well, that's a more serious matter, isn't it? And then we looked at, correlating to that, is that Scripture is truth itself. As our Lord is truth, as He is the Word of God, the Word given to us, the inscripturated Word is truth. And again, and looking at this last week, you may recall that this is one of the things that had been consistently eroding within American Christianity, and I imagine Christianity worldwide, but in our context, the erosion that the Word of God is the foundation. In other words, everything else that we believe rests squarely on truth. It rests squarely on the Word of God, and so it is important that we understand it as the authority that it is. And then finally, we looked at that Scripture is inerrant. 
It is inerrant. I know many of you have heard uh, it referred to as the inerrancy of Scripture. And last week we just uh, took a, a break and looked at the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy and walked through some summary statements on that. Uh, if you're unfamiliar with that, just Google Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy and you'll find what we understand uh, is uh, conveyed to us about the authority, uh, rather the inerrancy of Scripture in God's Word. Well, with, that, with all of that uh, reviewed, then today what we're going to look at is the sepic, second topic of the attributes of Scripture, and that is the clarity of Scripture. The clarity of Scripture. But we need to start with this. Because as soon as I say the clarity of Scripture, you may have said in your mind, well, it's not all clear, is it? And so we need to ask the underlying question of, in what is clear? In Scripture, in what is, what is clear in Scripture? That's, that's the question that we need to ask. I mean, think about it this way. You may say, well, doesn't the Apostle Peter... In 2 Peter, in referring to the Apostle Paul and his epistles, doesn't he say that Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters, when he speaks in them of these matters, there are some things in them that are, and I quote, hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. Peter's saying, when we receive the Word of God from the Apostle Paul in his epistles, there are some things that are really hard to understand in those epistles. And that gives us a certain amount of comfort, doesn't it? If the Apostle Peter is saying there's some hard things to understand in Paul's epistles, we can breathe a sigh of relief. We, 2,000 years later, also would say the same. Or someone may say, well, what about the Song of Solomon? Uh, it seems to me when I read the Song of Solomon, not very clear. Or what about that book you're teaching over there uh, on Sunday or preaching through on Sunday mornings, Ecclesiastes? Um, I've, I've heard that Ecclesiastes is the gateway drug for depression. <laughs> it's not. But, or someone might say, what about Revelation? Revelation, it uh, seems that there are so many different takes uh, on it, which is, introduced, in, interestingly enough, a rather modern phenomenon. There has not always been a myriad of takes on Revelation, interestingly enough, but I'll just drop that right there and let you think on that for a while. But the point is, is we need to understand what do we mean by clarity? What do we mean when we say that Scripture is clear? The Westminster Confession, you know I was going there, didn't you? In the first chapter, point seven, says this. All things in Scripture are not... Let me emphasize the first sentence of point seven of the first chapter says, not all Scripture is clear. All things in Scripture are not alike plain in themselves, nor alike clear unto all. Yet those things which are necessary to be known, believed, and observed for salvation are so clearly propounded and opened in some place of Scripture or other that not only the learned, 
but the unlearned in a due use of the ordinary means may attain unto a sufficient understanding of them. What's that saying? What's the, what's, the, what, what, what are, what's the confession? What We believe this, incidentally. This is our confession that we hold to. What are we saying? So first of all, we're saying not all Scripture's clear. So you can just breathe a sigh of relief. It's not just you. It's all of us. There are difficult things in Scripture. But what else is it saying? What's this, the second part and the, the main thrust of this saying? Salvation's clear. You, you, you don't have to be educated. You may just be barely reading. But you can read the Word of God and you can see clearly, and as it says here, in different places in Scripture, the truth of the gospel, the, me, the way to salvation. One theologian says, the clarity of Scripture, this is by way of definition, he writes, the clarity of Scripture means that the Bible is written in such a way that its teachings are able to be understood by all who will read it, seeking God's help and being willing to follow it. And so the idea is, is that those things which are clear in Scripture pertain to salvation and we can know them, we can understand them by way of seeking. And, and again, some of you would pause here and say, now hold on just a second, but for the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, no one can be saved. And that is a true point. But even the unregenerate can at least look to Scripture and see certain things within Scripture that will at least point them and direct them to Christ and Christ crucified, resurrected, that they might have life through faith in Him through the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. The second area uh, for us to elaborate on is what is meant by understandable. Scripture is understandable. First of all, Scripture is understandable in the areas in which we've defined it, even by children. Even by children. Uh, think about this. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, many of you will be familiar with this. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 6 and 7, it says, And these words I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. What was Moses teaching the children of Israel? That the Word of God, at this point of course, the, the revelation of God's Word as it was contained in Scripture in that moment, but this carries on even into the New Covenant, what God has revealed can be even understood by children. And so we teach our children the Word of God. This is one of the, the beautiful things about our heritage as Presbyterian. Presbyterians, we have a long history of emphasizing the Word of God to children, even at a young age. And oftentimes we've done this through the use of catechisms. Uh, for example, uh, we have a larger catechism, we have a shorter catechism, which are contained uh, within, I don't remember if we've still got any over here. Yeah, there they are. 
which are, are contained in what we call the Westminster Standards, so the Westminster Confession, Larger and Shorter Catechism. Uh, but many of you know that we also have a children's catechism. And the children's catechism begins with the first question. Does anybody know the first question of the children's catechism? And it's not the same question as the shorter catechism. Who made you? Answer? you, you got to get this. God. Now, now look, if you think about it, first of all, we know that Scripture teaches that God made us. And we, we got that down, right? Genesis. But what the catechism does, it takes the biblical truth and it helps bring it down to a level that is teachable. And I would imagine that any child that is able to at least understand mom or dad or grandparents or whatever the case is, they can be taught, who made you? Answer, God. God made you, so forth and so on. And so, Scripture is clear. It can even be understood by children. It can even be understood by the simple-minded. By the simple-minded, and I use that in the sense where there may be some sort of mental impairment. And yet, Psalm 19, verse 7 says, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Uh, Even those who are not able to necessarily think deeply, nevertheless, they can still understand the basic points of Scripture. So what's the problem? What is the problem? In other words, if we who are Christians, if we have a full canon of Scripture, and we are by virtue of faith in Christ indwelled by the Holy Spirit, Romans chapter 8, right? Why... Do we not all understand every single thing in Scripture? If Scripture is God's Word, and we are indwelled by the Holy Spirit, why do we not understand every single thing in Scripture? Why? Well, the problem's not Scripture. The problem is us. The problem is us. Paul writes to the church at Corinth. Or rather, let me back up and and, and say this. Uh, Jesus says in Matthew chapter 12, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry, and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priest? Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? Jesus is going on and on and on saying, haven't you read this? Haven't you read this? Haven't you read this? But the problem is, is by virtue of our sin nature, our sinful flesh, we are clouded even in our judgment. It would be like the same thing as me saying, so you've been saved through faith in Christ. You have been redeemed as a child of God. You have been indwelled by the Holy Spirit. So everybody, not at once, just tell me how your sinless perfection's going. Not so well. Not perfect. Well, that's right. You're not perfect. As I have said before, in, in, in modern Christianity, we make far too little of the fall. The fall was the most horrific event, cataclysmic in the history of the world. In the serenity of the garden, everything changed. And by virtue of the fall and the inherited 
sin nature that we have, though we are indwelled by the Holy Spirit, we still are dealing with this sin nature. Jesus, you may recall, referred over and over again, pointing to the Word of God in its perfection, and yet, and yet, still, they were not clear. I mean, you think about this, and I'll, I'll, I'll come to this in just a minute. You think about even His disciples, even those who had professed faith in Him. It was shortly after Peter's profession of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, which Jesus acknowledged had come from God, that Peter was standing in the way of God's divine sovereign purpose as revealed in Scripture. And so over and over again, we see the influence of our sin nature and how that impacts us. One theologian says the New Testament epistles were written to churches that had large proportion of Gentile Christians. They were relatively new Christians who had no previous background in any kind of Christian society and who had little or no prior understanding of the history and culture of Israel. Nevertheless, the New Testament authors show no hesitancy in expecting even these Gentile Christians to be able to read a translation of the Old Testament in their own language and to understand it rightly. In other words, what he's getting at is that even though we cannot understand it all, and even though we will have differing opinions, and I would imagine even within the fairly narrow scope of the Reformed tradition, I would imagine even today if we all sat down at a table, we would find that we all share a few different distinctions on our interpretation of Scripture. And yet, and yet, the apostles, when teaching... When the gospel and the word of God advanced to the New Testament churches, they had no hesitancy in teaching the whole counsel of God, the full word of God. And we should have no hesitancy either. And well, this is what I do for a living. I'm educated, trained, and get paid to do this. And there is so, so, so very much that I don't understand in the Word of God. And you do too. And so we understand that we have a sinful nature. We understand that God is the one who reveals His truth through us. And in this sense, it does two things. Number one, it humbles us, doesn't it? It humbles us. And then secondarily, it also leaves with us a longing for heaven. A longing for heaven. So understanding Scripture then is not merely intellectual, but it's spiritual. It's why some of you, I would imagine, who have family or friends, uh, they can hear a Bible verse read and not get it at all. And you can hear it, and, and the Holy Spirit within you jumps for joy. You go, yes, that is the truth. That is wonderful. It's because... Scripture is not merely intellectual. It is intellectual in the sense that we must use our mind, right? But it is also spiritual, and therefore it must be spiritually discerned. And this is where I was going just a minute ago. Paul says, "...the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them, because they are spiritually discerned." And so what Paul's describing there is there are some things that the world is just not ever going to get. It's like 1 Corinthians chapter 1 
when, when he says, line up all the wise people of the world, and I'm going to make them think this is the stupidest thing in the world. Christ crucified. Does it make sense? It's illogical. How can it be that the second person of the Trinity, Trinity would become man, would come for the purpose of dying for His people? that would resurrect from the dead, that we might have life in Him. That is crazy talk to the unregenerate mind. And yet, it is spiritually understood. Furthermore, Paul says in 2 Corinthians, For we are not writing to you anything other than what you read and understand, and I hope you will fully understand just as you did partially understand us, that on the day of our Lord Jesus, you will boast of us as we will boast of you. In other words, what Paul is describing there is that, let me put it this way, when when you first became a Christian, and I hope we're directed to begin reading the Scripture, Now, I would imagine that there are a number of things that were difficult to understand. Maybe you didn't understand much of it when you first read. Now, fast forward X number of years, however many years that is, to today. Um, Have you grown in your understanding of Scripture? Man, I sure hope so. Uh, Have you grown in your understanding of what the Bible teaches and what it conveys? Well, I certainly hope so. I would would imagine we would all say yes. And and what Paul is emphasizing there is is that at first you may not understand it, but you're, you're sticking with it. You're growing in your understanding. And so, if Scripture is clear, why is it often misunderstood? It's often misunderstood because of our sin, and we will never fully understand all of Scripture in this life. But secondly, it's also due in part to maturity. When you became a Christian, you didn't instantly, it's not like a download. It's not like that, that you, you, you know, the Holy Spirit indwelled you, and then it was like download all information to John's head. No, it didn't happen that way, did it? It happens gradually. It happens progressively. It happens in what we call sanctification. And so we grow in our our understanding. Jesus was frustrated with His disciples when He said, Are you also still without understanding? You have hung out with Me for three years, boys, and you still don't get it. You still don't understand. It takes time. In Acts chapter 15, it says, And after there had been much debate, let me pause here for just a second and paint this picture. So the apostolic authorities of the New Testament church have gathered. And I don't know what kind of table it was or what kind of room it was, but but they gather together. And this is one of the first church councils. And do you know what they do right from the get-go in this first early church council? Scripture says they debate. <laughs> they, they debate. And what is fascinating to me about that is, is that I think that so many Christians think that when you become a Christian or when you reach to a certain point of maturity, but then you got it all. You've got all of it figured out. Well, I, I've met some of those folks that have it all figured out, right? 
they don't have it all figured out, do they? It's right from the get-go. The church, early church council debates drawing, I would imagine, I'm making all this up now, but I would imagine drawing from the Old Testament, drawing from the words of Christ, drawing from the situation that they're in to better understand. And it says, after there had been, and I quote, much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. In other words, in, in the context of there was advancing the gospel to the Gentiles outside of Jerusalem, and Peter says, okay, we have debated this enough. Much debate has occurred. Now, I want you to remember this. Here's the simple point. Preach the gospel beyond Jerusalem. Go therefore into all nations, etc., etc. And the idea here is this is gained by maturity. And yet, and yet, we see the same person who stood up in that first council and said, okay, I want to make sure we have a clear directive here. We see that same guy confronted by the Apostle Paul when he was out of line. You may recall in Galatians chapter 2, Paul says, But when Cephas, that is Peter, when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? And it's a beautiful section in Galatians where, Galatians where the Apostle Paul is talking about the freedom and the grace that we have in Christ and yet, what we also see in this, within that same chapter, we see that even Peter had a lot of growing to do. Even the Apostle Peter had a lot of maturing to do. And we can all grow and mature in our understanding of Scripture. So, I was teeing all that up to get to this. Where does that leave us? Well, remember when I said that when we become Christians, it's not like a download. So in order for us to be able to know Scripture, Scripture may become more and more clear to us, what does it require since download's not an option? Subtlety is my gift. Study. Oh, that Scripture's so hard. There's, there's so many difficult things in it. How regularly are you, are you in it? There's so many things that I don't know about Scripture. How consistently do you study it? You know, I just don't think I'll ever know the Bible. Are you dedicated to being in it on a daily basis? 
So many times we put up excuses on how hard it is to understand it, how difficult certain things are in Scripture, when in reality, God has designed it, not by download, but by our sanctification. And part of our sanctification is to study God's Word. What does that include? All right, a couple of, uh, of theological terms for you. No seminary degrees conveyed here, but you ought to know a couple of words. First of all, the word hermeneutics. What does hermeneutics mean? And what else does it mean? It means interpret, huh? Yeah, conclusions that you draw. We would we would call it interpretation. Hermeneutics means in interpretation. And, and so you think about it this way. Um, I like to use the word a framework, a hermeneutical framework. That's what I call it. You call it whatever you want to. But a hermeneutical framework is the interpretation that, through which I read Scripture. And, and, and someone may push back and, and, and say, you know, well, you just take Scripture at face value. But here's the thing, folks. When I'm reading Scripture... And I'm consistently seeing that it is referring to predestination and election. At some point, I have to draw a hermeneutical distinction to say, you know what, I'm pretty sure election is true. Which means that as I look at other scriptures that may or may not deal with election, for example, that may factor into how I understand that. Furthermore, as we grow and as we mature in our study of Scripture, we may find that there are others who have gone before us, who have studied the Word of God, and they have compiled it into something like a confession. And in that confession, I look at it, and I look at my reading and study of Scripture, and I go, wow, that confession's a great summary of what I understand Scripture to be saying, you know what, I'm just going to become a Presbyterian. Which incidentally is what I did. I became a Presbyterian in large part because of the Westminster Confession of Faith. I look at the Westminster Confession of Faith and I say, wow, for all of the years that I have studied Scripture, even going through first starting out in a seminary that didn't subscribe to the Westminster Standards, and I look at it and I go, wow, that's a great summary of Scripture. You know what? I'm going to go alongside those boys. I, I think they got it right. I'm going to partner up with them, and that's what, we, what, what I do. So when I'm preaching a sermon on Sunday mornings or I'm teaching a class, I'm teaching it through the hermeneutical framework the interpretive understanding that looks through the lens of what I understand Scripture to be conveying. The interpretation of it, and in our case as Presbyterians, is the Westminster Confession and Catechisms. Second word, another big word for you to understand. Exegesis. Exegesis. What's exegesis mean? Well, the best way to think about it this way, of course, some of you uh, who are students of language, you know, ex means coming out of, and so you can think about it this way, is exegesis is drilling down 
into the Word of God, drilling down into it, and pulling out from it what we understand from that excavation work. So if I'm, I'm digging in the ground, and I'm searching for gold, and, and, and I dig down and I, I find it, I pull that gold out, right? And that's what I've gained from that exegesis. So exegesis is the hard work of studying Scripture. And pastors are not the only ones who do it. And I've described my process to you uh, before. When I'm, so I'm going to preach through Ecclesiastes. So here's, here's my, how I work through in terms of exegesis. First of all, I will look at it and I will read the passage in the translation, English translation that I'm going to preach out of. Then the second thing I'll do is if there are anything in that passage that is difficult to understand or I can see by virtue of the way that it's written that it has to do with, or there's a nuance there in terms of the language, then I'll go back and I'll look at some of my Hebrew commentaries. I'll look and see if there are word plays, word distinctions. Uh, uh, Ecclesiastes is full of Hebrew idioms and things of that nature. Then once I've done that, then I will try to understand what's this saying in my own words. Then I'll look for themes. The reason why on the bulletin there's always pillars uh, or themes, those are the themes that when I look at the passage, I go, these are the big ideas. And when I finish preaching, I want everybody to at least grasp these big ideas and then they can go home, right? And so after I have looked at the big ideas, then I will work my way through as best that I can to try to convey to you what the passage is saying, what it applies to us in a New Covenant, New Testament context, and what we can take from it. I don't always do that. You know that well, but that's the goal in driving down. But it all starts with the excavation work, digging down into Scripture. And you don't have to know Hebrew or Greek to do this. You don't actually have to have a whole lot of time to do this. What you do need is just to be committed to be in Scripture daily. And then when you're in Scripture daily, this is the way I would encourage you to do it anyway, there will be certain things that you come across that you find interesting or you want to better understand. That's where a good study Bible comes in helpful. I recommend two study Bibles in this order. The Reformation Study Bible that's put out by Ligonier Ministries. As Presbyterians, I'd probably put that primary and then secondarily, uh, I think the ESV study Bible is a genius work. Um, it's just got a little Baptistic influence in there that I, I, I can't push it up to number one. But I think the Reformation study Bible is outstanding. The ESV study Bible is a good second. Those are good tools to have in your arsenal as long as, as, long as when you're reading Scripture, you're not just constantly reading the notes. We want to be in the Word of God, not the notes. But they're helpful tools to have with you. So, we study through hermeneutics, we study through exegesis. So then, what about those really difficult, and this is where I'm going to land, or end rather, what about those really difficult passages of Scripture where you say, I don't know, John, I've read Revelation 75 times. I still, I still don't get it all. Well, I don't either, but... I have access to scholars. And so this is the one of the things that is a heavy emphasis within the Reformed tradition. We rely upon scholarship. In our tradition, that is, 
We rely upon scholars. What do scholars do? Well, first of all, scholars will typically have the time and the resources to spend if they want to spend a year on one passage, that may be what, what they're studying at that time. And so they have the time and the resources to be able to dig into them. They're able to explore. They're typically trained with advanced terminal degrees, a terminal meaning the, you know, like a PhD. And <clears throat> they're able then to make discernments based on that and to defend them. And we're the recipients of it. So if you come into my office, you're welcome anytime. Make an appointment first. Uh, if you come into my office and you say, so John, tell me what you're reading on Ecclesiastes. Well, I'm going to pull out one, two, I'll do this by memory, one, two, three, there's two narrow ones, three, four, five, six, seven. I'll pull out seven commentaries and I'll lay them down and i say, here, here are the scholars. Now, I don't read all of them you know, because I wouldn't be able to do anything else in the week, right? But they're, they're there, and when I come into difficult portions of Scripture, I'm able to go to scholars and to look at those difficult positions. Does it mean that they're always right? No. I, I preached on a, a passage recently in which, and I kid you not, in which all of my commentaries took a different take on the passage, not what you want when you're preaching on Sunday. <laughs> I'm like, you got to be kidding me. And, uh, and I did. I looked at the different perspectives, and I, I found which one uh, that I, I felt like best conveyed that passage. But it's still hard work and still difficult working. But even then, and one of the reasons why I mentioned the study Bibles, even then, you can get, gain a lot through a good study Bible, like the Reformation Study Bible or the ESV Study Bible, because those who have worked and contributed to those are scholars. And they've been able to, to bring it down and to consolidate and uh, to be able to provide what you can. Although the frustration is, as I, I had someone tell me, actually not too long ago, they said, you know, my problem is, is I love those study Bibles, but all the verses that I have questions on, they don't comment on them. Uh, well, there are some things that are so difficult that you just can't include it in a little snippet at the bottom of the page. And that requires uh, calling your pastor, speaking to a, a Presbyterian a scholar, uh, talking to someone that does this for, a, a, for a, a living and looking at it more deeply. But all of this to say, these are, I've sort of I've gone from peeling the onion so to speak, back to this, is that nevertheless, Scripture is indeed clear. It is clear on the topic of the gospel. Scripture gains clarity as we commit to study it. And the more that we're in the Bible, the more that we're in God's Word, the more clear it becomes. And it's one of the reasons why I want to encourage you today, as Scripture is clear, dedicate yourself to being in the Word of God. Dedicate yourself to being in it daily, now, the, the ruling elders in the room would not leave me alone if I didn't give this commercial. We have a devotion guide. And some of you read through it, and if you're not, I encourage you. But our devotion guide will actually lead you through reading the Bible daily, taking you to the Old Testament, the New Testament, the Psalms, and the Proverbs every single day. And at the end of the year, you'll have read the entire Bible and the Psalms twice 
what a rich blessing that is. And so that's available to you as a resource. Let me pray for us. Our gracious God, we do thank You that Your Word is clear. And the most important thing that we, in what we as sinners may believe, that we may be saved. And we thank You that Your Word is indeed rich and deep. And we thank You that we have the opportunity to have a full and complete canon, that we may read Your Word, that we may study Your Word. Lord, we live in an an age in which we are so blessed with so many resources. May we, Your people, be faithful to use but a fraction of those resources. And we thank You for those within our tradition who spend time and the resources that are devoted to digging deeply into Your Word, even in those most difficult areas to study. And we thank You that we are also able to draw from them. All of this is by Your design. All of this is a blessing to us, Your people. And so we thank You. We ask now that as we go across the street, in which Your Word will be sung and prayed and read and preached, that You may be exalted through the truth and authority and clarity of Your Word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.